Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's in this episode i might swear lucy might cry and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website content warning for this week's episode our guest is going to be talking about mental health including her experience of an eating disorder as well as athlete abuse and emotional and psychological bullying hi everyone welcome to the label podcast this is another part of our special disability sports series which has been really fun so far today of course it's me and lucy hi (laughs) we are recording in the evening when i've been at work all day yeah so i think lucy's going to be doing the heavy lifting today thanks for the warning (laughs) (laughs) i am somewhat talked out for the day but that's okay because we've got an excellent guest on. Yes, exactly. So, um, and I think our guest today is is quite well versed in talking, seeing as she's a sports broadcaster, as well as a like official accomplished sports person herself. Uh, I'd like to introduce everybody to Gemma Stevenson. Hi, guys. Hi, Gemma. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No worries. Um, do you want to just take a second to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are? Yeah, so um, I am, um, you've, you've mentioned it, I'm a sports broadcaster and journalist. Uh, and I also um, am a bit sporty myself as well. Um, so um, I'm a former um, Team England paratier athlete. And, um, and now I just play wheelchair tennis. I used to do both of them together. It was quite hectic as well as managing a day job, but um, I enjoyed it. But now I just play wheelchair tennis uh, and I'm concentrating on wheelchair tennis. I wouldn't call myself accomplished at wheelchair tennis. I'd say I'm better at talking about it than playing it. (laughs) You know, I I defy a few odds when I get on court, to be fair, um, because I'm probably when I go into a draw, I'm one of the more disabled players. So um, I think I'm expected to lose to everybody in every draw I don't think anybody expects me to win a match so when I do it's like oh yay I did something good <laughs> but uh, no, I'm definitely more I'm definitely better at talking wheelchair tennis than um I am at playing it um yeah I've kind of made a name for myself by following the um uh, elite guys uh, around on tour asking them silly questions as well as sensible <laughs> ones uh I mean if anybody's heard any of my bits that I put up during grand slams and stuff I mean, as much as you get analysis of the matches, you do get uh, questions about whether, um, you know, players were deliberately twinning their outfits when they played a doubles match. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I like to have a little bit of fun with the questioning because I know as myself, as somebody who's 
who's been um, a national team athlete within cheerleading. Um, sometimes you always get asked the same questions, generally involving inspiration, but we'll not go into that quite so early in the podcast. Um, but you get asked the same old boring questions and you're like, well, I just want to, I just want to, you know, make this a bit more interesting. Like, I'm going to ask you about the pizza that's named after you. Do you know what I mean? If I, if I know there's a pizza named after an athlete, I'll just ask them about it. Yeah. But I think would be my goal in life. I could die <laughs> happy if somebody named a pizza after me. <laughs> well, you need to talk to Papa John's because they're doing a, They've given four Paralympians the chance to kind of design a pizza. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> what? That is the most weird competition. <laughs> no, no, no. But they, like, I, I have to say I do have a favourite and I'm a bit biased because I am, like, from the wheelchair tennis world. It is Alfie's. <laughs> Uh, Alfie, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Alfie's, Alfie, you, it's pizza from Papa John's. There are other pizzas from Papa John's, and there are other pizza at places available. But Alfie, you, it's Grand Slam pizza from Papa John's is a solid flavor mix. It's like barbecue sauce, mm. uh, chicken. Um, I forget what else it is. Like, I think there's peppers on there as well. I don't know. I've only ever had it once, but of of the four, I, you know, I, you can call me biased. But it is the, for me, it's the solid flavour choice. I just think it's a really weird thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Congratulations on your Paralympic journey. Here's a pizza and up to you. To be fair, it's not. The amount of times I've asked Alfie about pizza after right. he's won a title, <laughs> because he does go and eat pizza, he likes pizza. Yeah. So I would assume it's probably one of his life goals. Um, I can't answer that for him. But but um, there have been many a times when I've asked um, Alfie you about pizza after he's won a title. Um, so it's probably not that much of a step away for him. No, maybe not. I think mine would be spicy stuff with cheese. So uh, that's basically my approach to life. <laughs> to be fair, I'd probably go posh. I'd probably go like prosciutto and rocket and tomato. The nice like tom tomato sauce. See, mm. I like tuna. Oh. You can't have tuna on a pizza. pizza. You can't have tuna on a pizza. You yes, can't you have can. fish on a pizza. Yes, you, can. you can't have fish ah. on a pizza. You know how some people say you can't have pineapple on a pizza? Yeah, well, I, I think, think they're wrong as well. I know. No, I think they're wrong. I think you should be allowed pineapple on a pizza. It's perfectly okay. A decent Fine. Hawaiian is good. Yeah. But I feel that the way these people feel about not having pineapple on the pizza, I feel about not having any form of fish on a pizza. No, I like, you see, I like an anchovy. No, oh, no. Ugh. Nah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just salt. <laughs> so we've digressed somewhat from sport. <laughs> yeah. You'd you'd assume elite sports people would have like super strict diets, but uh, here's Gemma with all the pizza. <laughs> no, so... to be fair, my biggest uh, my biggest sin is coffee. Like oh. I live off coffee. If yes. it hasn't got coffee, coffee cake. Yes. Uh, there was one time, so I've just been reporting from Wimbledon and I went out to meet a friend and I full on coffeed. It was like I had an espresso martini. I had a tiramisu. I was like, <laughs> I could not be more coffee in this meal right now. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think for me, so I, I never class myself as an elite sports person because, um, yeah, OK, I've represented the country in cheerleading, but I never I never I never kind of class myself as and I'm definitely not elite in wheelchair tennis. Uh, there's some dodgy shots come off my racket. I'm telling you that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and there were today. I've just been training today, and uh, some of the shots that came off my racket, you wouldn't believe I have a tournament in about ten days. Um, 
I think my poor tennis coach is kind of pulling his hair out tonight thinking what do I do with her no to be fair uh, me and my tennis coach we have quite a good relationship and it's quite um, collaborative so he knows I have bad days and I have good days Uh, and today was just a bad day no yeah it's weird because I've never like I've always counted myself as a sports journalist first and foremost who kind of dabbles in sport Mm. and I think it's because I've always had that competitive spirit you know I've I grew up in musical theatre and playing sport and, you know, musical theatre industry is a competitive industry. Yeah. Um, you know, Cutthroat, I think I've heard so described as. It's like, you can turn up to an audition, they can call you to an audition and they're like, oh, sorry, I know we saw your picture beforehand, but actually we've seen you in real life and your face doesn't fit, so just go. So you've prepared all of this and it's like, okay, uh, right. Um, <laughs> thanks for making me do the 60 mile trip um, mm. for that. But no, and, and I've always been in quite competitive environments. Um, so I think I've always had a competitive edge. And I think if I was just doing my day job as a sports journalist I th- and didn't have that competitive outlet, I'd like outlet, like I had the cheerleading mm. or now I do the national series in wheelchair tennis here in the UK. I think because the media, especially sports media, is very competitive as well. I, it's kind of like my, it, it sounds really strange, but I compete in sport as kind of like a chill time. <laughs> um, but if you've seen me on court I mean I probably my doubles partner my regular doubles partner is Mariam and you know what she puts up a, with a lot with me because I start singing show tunes at her in the middle of the doubles matches like her her mission this and we've just done a tournament where we finished runner-up and uh, her mission was that after every point she had to let it go um <laughs> mucked up because she thought too much on it and she was like you've just got to tell me to let it go well I didn't tell her I literally started singing frozen at her and every <laughs> yeah. she hit a shot that she needed to let go she got full-on Elsa <laughs> um and she, she was like but I I'm the kind of person that when I'm competing I've got to be having fun like if it gets too intense I'm like whoa don't like this don't like this don't like this intensity um so so I she that's why we work so well together actually me and Mariam she understands that I need a bit of fun um and that I need to go off starting to sing you know like Frozen and uh, I mean once we I mean one one tournament we like literally tag teamed Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music (laughs) (laughs) um you know it's it's you know whatever gets you through a match um but yeah no I find it really strange but then I have to look back and go well yeah I've I've won a gold medal at the ICU World Championships in cheerleading so te- and representing the country. So technically, I do fit in that box of elite sports person, but it's <laughs> just something I've never thought of myself as because mm. sport's always been my thing that I do to chill. Mm. Um, the, the fact that I've then ended up doing competitions and stuff is just kind of like a, oh, yeah, I was just there for the vibes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> which which is sound it does sound really strange but but I think it helps me I think when I go into those newsrooms I mean obviously a lot of my career is the wheelchair tennis tour and reporting on that uh with the Paralympics I'm called upon to report on more sports so like wheelchair rugby and wheelchair basketball but I think playing wheelchair tennis as well even though it's not to the level on the guys that I'm reporting on I still understand what has to be done on a tennis court uh, when you sat in a wheelchair, I have to say, I've watched wheelchair tennis over and over again, and I am always flabbergasted at how quickly you move with a racket in your hand. Like, 
I can't do that. <laughs> well, the thing is, I have my racket taped to my hand as well, so I'm literally pushing off my knuckles. I know. Because um, I can't grip the racket because I haven't got hand function. But I'm telling you what, it's not even just the movement. I, I tell you what, if you see how hard, like, so there's a Belgian player called um, Joaquin Gerard. If you see how hard he hits the serve, it's like, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be on the end of that. No. It's like, I don't know, it's in the hundreds. <laughs> about I, any... just, I, I have problems keeping up with people when I'm on the high street. Never mind <laughs> on a tennis court when I'm with a ball flying up my face. So um, I'm in complete awe of you. Really. Somebody tried to make me play blind tennis once. Oh, yeah. Which is basically, it's a noisy ball. And uh, <laughs> they shouted at me when they said it was coming. And my reaction, whenever somebody throws a ball or anything like that at my face, it's just hands in front of my face, eyes closed, and just... So I was not good at blind oh, no. tennis. <laughs> at, my, um, at my tennis club, so one of my um, people people in tennis who I get on with in count as a friend is Rachel Morgan, and she's like... Um, the B1 world champion, so officially mm. paired tennis. Mm. She came up to my club one day and it was a really nice atmosphere actually and showed how inclusive tennis can be. Like it's such an inclusive sport. So there was me, uh, my non-disabled coach and her, a VI player, and we were all playing a match against each other. Uh, oh, and some and, and another player with limb difference using prosthetics. So there was there was the four of us all you all playing and adapting tennis to suit each of us. Mm. And and we were having a really competitive match. Like if you'd heard that you don't want to hear what was being said on the court. <laughs> it's probably not broadcastable and Ofcom would have a field day. But um but no, we were all and we were all having a really good match and it was really nice to see. And like there's a little picture on my Instagram of us all there and um it was a really good day and I probably one of my favourite days of playing tennis because I think it really showed that anybody can hit with anybody and I think that's why sort of when I when I had my car accident tennis was a sport that I was driven driven to because I could I can go on a court and have a hit with my mum not with my dad he's not very good at tennis um he's better at football he's not good at rackets it's bad it's bad he can't hit the ball um but you know or I can go on like at my club at my tennis club where I train it's a very inclusive environment so I am the only wheelchair player at my club but that doesn't stop me you know taking part in everything that the club has to offer so I go I go to social doubles which I'm going to be honest right it's meant to practice doubles for match play it's actually play two matches and then drink there's a lot of fruity cider consumed uh, yeah. on a Wednesday night but do you know what I get to hit with the non-disabled players the standing players the pedestrian players um however you like to refer to them uh, I get to hit with them and I play doubles against them and it's that kind of I feel included I'm not I'm not an other if you know what I mean I am mm-hmm. a tennis player first and foremost so uh you said that before you got into tennis you were doing competitive cheerleading and I'm sure I'm not the only person who's immediately thinking of bring it on. So <laughs> maybe tell us a little bit about what it's really like. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets a bit of a bad rap because people think it, it sits in that, is it a sport or is it not? I mean, it's good that the IOC have given it recognition now as a sport um, because actually it's quite dangerous. <laughs> it's like it's dangerous because if you drop somebody on their head, like that's that that could be game over. Hmm. 
Um, I was a base, so I basically lifted people with no hand function. Yes, that's scary. I have no hand function, and I was in charge of lifting people. That is scary. <laughs> Not so much for you, but for the yeah, I was going to say, lifted. I don't know who it's more scary for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always, I was like, oh my god, don't drop the person, don't drop the person. No, it was. It just showed the adaptations that can be made in a sport that traditionally somebody with my level of disability you wouldn't think could do you know i have no core um i have no hand function um and i and i'm lifting a human but it was like it mixes um non-disabled and disabled athletes mm. so i used to have so i was i had a base support which was a non who was a non-disabled athlete and if my arms weren't playing ball at any point and deciding not to you know lift the flyer up who's if you've ever watched if you've seen bring it on you'll have seen the flies those are the ones that go up in the air they get chucked um, up in the air and do the splits uh, the bases just stand on the bottom and lift them um and i had a base support so if my arms decided that they were going to have a wobble or anything they um um they used to force my arms up in the air <laughs> and oh keep my them God. Steady. so i have a i have a disability called dystonia um, which is a neurological condition. I got it because of, as a result of a car accident um, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, it's basically, um, you can have spasms without knowing it. And a lot of the abnormal posturing, um, you get a lot of abnormal posturing on the way to doing something. So um, having that base support meant that I was like, you know, able to push it up and uh, and and not kind of kill any human being uh while taking part in sport um Did it ever hurt your arms like if you were mid-lift was it like oh god my arms have gone well i was quite funny because also because i've got hemidystonia so it predominantly affects my right hand side so what was really funny is we always had to find a way to balance out my two arms because in tennis it doesn't matter so much that my left arm stretches out more than my mm. right arm but if mm. you're trying to keep a flyer at the same level and your left arm's like way up here having a party and your right arm's like no I'm not going any further <laughs> um, it's kind of it's, it it was it was quite interesting and actually the 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 four girls I worked with in my stunt group we we kind of clicked so well that we knew what was happening um and if 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 we needed to bring a stunt down to slightly lower because my arm just really wasn't going to be forced up uh, that particular day and it was more not um you know more dangerous to force it up for everybody involved um we kind of we had good communication um and so we knew and they knew if i was having a good day or a bad day um so i think within cheerleading you you have your stunt groups who you're on the mat with and they kind of become like your little family um and um yeah they come become like your little family and and you kind of get to know each other so you know when somebody's not kind of 100 percent on it um or if if you're not going to hit and then you will always have ways to like make sure that whatever happens that person who's being thrown up in the air does not die on your watch <laughs> good to know i think it's really in- interesting because you're talking about you know being competitive and i think that when a, people think about competitive sport quite often they think that it's a very everybody's out for themselves but you've talked a lot about community, you know, there's a real sense of partnerships in your cheerleading and in your tennis, you know, you've talked about your doubles partner as well as your coach. Um, I think, so I think that's probably a bit unexpected for people because it's certainly a bit unexpected for me. You don't 
you know, when you think of uh, camaraderie and teamwork in sports, you think bigger things like football and rugby, where there's a clear big team. Yeah. But it sounds like you've got a real, that there is a real community in your sort of your sporting life. Yeah. So I suppose tennis is probably the most obvious one that everybody thinks is an individual sport. And it is like when you're on court and you've got to get your way out of a singles match, you are on your own. But the mental fortitude that you um, build isn't you on your own. There's a whole team of people. So like whenever I get a result, I'm always, always um quick to recognize and I always put on my social media a thanks to my coach and to the team at the club that I train at because I have that result even though it's been me on the court on my own in singles that result hasn't come from me on my own that results come from a lot of confidence building and especially with my tennis coach because um the reason why I left competitive cheerleading was because um I was um, sadly, a victim of athlete abuse and control in sport. And basically, he built me like I, I went to him, you know, a year ago. And I said, I don't know whether I, I was scared to take part in sport again. I was scared to be a sports journalist again. I didn't. I was just scared um, because of what had happened. And particularly in my coach and athlete relationship in um, tennis, part of the journey that we've gone on is he's literally had to rebuild me from the ground up again because any confidence I had in my ability in any form of sport was just washed away by the actions of one national team coach that's why my tennis journey to where I am now over the last 12 months has been so such a surprise for me because I think it happened that um the athlete abuse in cheerleading and I was like I'm never I'm never going to work as a sports journalist again and be in a sports newsroom and I'm never going to go and compete again I'd literally said that um but my tennis coach at my club literally was like right we've got to deal with this this is a this is kind of an added extra to what we're also batting because um I think a lot of people get quite shocked when I say because when they see me like presenting or they see what I write it comes across that I'm quite a confident person but I have a lot of imposter syndrome mm. so as well as the imposter syndrome I already had saying oh I can't play tennis it's awful it's terrible uh, I just can't hit that um I also had to battle um the confidence knock that going from where you felt safe in sport to where you felt completely unsafe and threatened and I had to build that up again um and you know that hasn't been me on my own um you know that's been me with my tennis coach I, there's been times when i've i've gone to a session and i couldn't i couldn't hit a ball i've literally been crying at him <laughs> um because i've had something else has happened with regard to whatever what what's gone on and it's happened that morning and i just can't get my head around it and then it's just been a gentle session saying, okay, let's just hit some balls in a fun way. And 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 that build up is testament to the team behind me as well. Yeah, a lot of people think tennis is an individual sport, but there's so much that goes on in the background uh, that means it's not an individual sport. And I think in wheelchair tennis as well, and this is not saying that it doesn't happen in pedestrian tennis, but I, it's something I've noticed reporting on wheelchair tennis. If a wheelchair tennis player 
get some kind of really big achievement. They always refer to their coach and the team behind them because it, it's never just, although it's you on that court on your own in singles, it's not you on your own that's got you there. It's not you on your own that's got you that result. Um, it's having the right setup around you. Uh, and that's more than one person. Do you think that's a disability thing as well? Because I think that a lot of disabled people have a huge support network around them. I know I do. Um, to get to like up dressed, looking ready for the world. I just wonder whether disabled people are more aware of it and more quick to go. I'd like to thank everyone behind the scenes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, for me, yeah, it's I, it's just for me, it's a no brainer. Cause I'm like, yeah. I don't, I don't. And it will be for me too. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't get here on my own. No. I didn't just turn up on a tennis court and teach myself. No. Uh, and you know, how to hit those shots, how to think like that and how to deal with the pressure. It's really interesting what you're saying about kind of that teamwork and you listening to you both sort of reflecting on whether that's a disability thing or whether it's a sports thing. Um, makes me think about the other episodes we've got in this series and we've had a chat with Paralympic swimmer Liz Wright and she talks a lot about the kind of individual pressures put on sports people particularly by the public when you're in the public eye things like that and we've also got Gemma Steele who used to run for Team GB and she told us a story when she came on the show about training for the marathon and because of her neurodiversity she just wasn't really given the support she needed and so never actually made it onto a onto the London marathon which was kind of her dream yeah you know and at the time she was she was out pacing Paula Radcliffe who was you know we are talking 10 years ago was a huge British athlete and it was that kind of the the failure of that inclusion that stopped her from being able to progress. So it's really interesting, really, to, you know, also to reflect that Liz was racing in the 90s and early noughties. Gemma was running 10 odd years ago. And then, you know, maybe this is the start of something new for disabled sports people. Yeah, the experience you're having now. I think we've got to reality check it. Like, even now, like, as I've said, you know, as an athlete, I was abused by a national team coach within cheerleading. It's why I'm very vocal about how we need to make disabled people feel safe in sport. Because I know what can happen. Like, I, I will deal with the mental health repercussions of being abused in sport for the rest of my life. And I nearly lost everything. And you, you guys know, as disabled people and disabled people in the media, whatever it looks like to the outside world, in order to get where you are in, in the media industry as a disabled person, especially in my case as somebody who looks disabled, like somebody who is is on the higher level of disability, you have to fight for everything. And, you know, to have a national team coach, in my, my sports career and my media career had always been separate and not, neither had interfered. I... Right, my I, I have a history of an eating disorder. My eating disorder came back because somebody was trying to take control off me. And it's, mm. most people with eating disorders know it has this bad rap. There's like this thing that an eating disorder is because you're, you know, vain. 
and it's because you think you're fat and it's not eating disorders come around because you've lost control yeah um and so i i kind of flirt between anorexia and bulimia and, and unfortunately when this um athlete abuse happened i went into the anorexic cycle where i wasn't eating i joke with my tennis coach now that my eating disorder is older than him uh, <laughs> um it's not a joke but no but we do i say my eating disorder is older than you um because it's been part of my life since i was a teenager and um yeah and there was a point a few years ago where i i literally got told by my doctor uh it's now or never to sort this out because you've started to get the liver damage that comes with mm. what you do with food and i just i got myself back into a point and to know that that was all that took it took to set me back and it was a bad setback and then and i just had to keep reminding myself that i'd come back from and reversed damage that could have killed me and i think that's what people don't realize either you know eating disorders can kill and so if you're in a sport and you've got a national team manager kind of making athletes feel like they need to use that behavior that's really bad and i think i think it's also something that needs to be talked about within disability sport because very often you are in para sport or disability sport because that's your home you can't just leave and go and represent your country or go and even at grassroots level go and compete mm. in a non-disabled sport you are stuck there for me it was an easy and i wouldn't say it was easy it was very tough and i had to work out whether speaking out about it was the right thing my advice to anybody is if you don't feel safe in sport now is speak out because nobody deserves to be made to feel the way i felt um in in my old sport of cheerleading nobody deserves that and but i would so if anybody asked me now i'd be like you need to speak out and you need to say something but i don't know whether it was slightly it made my decision to speak out slightly easier because i had another sport in tennis mm. so i by speaking out i knew i was losing my chance to ever compete in cheerleading again that was it that was you know that would cut the cord and i'd never get a chance to go back to the world championships to defend the gold medal and i'd never i'd never have that again um because it was kind of like you've seen it with other athletes where 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 they've had they've done it and it's kind of you know um it is that that's nuclear you have to you know and and so for me i knew i could always move around to tennis but a lot of athletes don't have that a lot of disabled athletes don't have that and they don't do multiple sports and you know to a lot of disabled people taking part in sport it is the only thing they can do so i i'm really like one of the reasons why i'm really passionate speaking about about it is because i want other disabled people at whatever level grassroots to elite who are taking part in sport to realize that just because it's the only place you can do the sport doesn't mean you have to take the shit if, mm. if you have a if you have somebody in charge of you and your welfare who isn't looking after you and your welfare and is really going after that gold medal over thinking about how to look after your athlete that is you know that needs to be called out um because the other thing is is you've got to realize and i think a lot of places don't realize that like yeah like i've said to you um because of what happened to me in cheerleading the mental health implications are going to be lifelong there's a bit of ptsd there that means that if i get in a stressful situation i can easily flip and get flashbacks and and kind of like to not have the support in cheerleading from the national governing body 
you know, to say, okay, how do we need to support you? I was left to deal with it on my own. I was left to go to my own GP and my GP was left to deal with it. And we've, yeah, I just, I, I didn't have the support. But the great thing is about tennis is I know from reporting on it and I know it's it's one of the, one of the strongest sports for safeguarding. So I was moving across to a sport that had really like tightened up its safeguarding. You know, I'm a level one coaching assistant on tennis. Uh, and in order to be accredited, I'm expected to do a safeguarding certificate every so often. And I'm expected to renew first aid. Um, I, You know, I only volunteer as a coaching assistant, but I'm expected to have those things to remain accredited. And mm -hmm. every coach is. So it, the, the systems tennis has in place and the way that they deal with things, you know, there have been in these tournaments in the last year or since April, because really because of lockdowns we've only got started again since April even at national series level if I've felt like I was going to have a wobble on court I've been able and felt safe to go up to the tournament referee and say could I have this just on court as support because if not I don't know whether I'm going to make it through the match and it's never been no it's been yes let's see how we can make it work mm. and 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 for me that was kind of like okay cheerleading showed me how it shouldn't be done but mm. tennis showed me how it should be and how I can be made to feel safe one of the things you're really kind of getting across here is about the inclusion and sort of meeting of people's needs and I think there's always a lot of talk in the disability world about um how we can support people to access things because of their impairment but I think one of the things that isn't talked about a lot is the impact that not having an impairment as such but quite often the social pressures and the prejudices around having a disability can have on your mental health yeah. and so actually there's another side to it because you've got to be able to support people and include the support people need to manage their mental health mm. as well as their dis disabled needs, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does. And that's that's the one thing that me and my tennis coach have managed, like, expertly, probably. I'd say that he's managed it the best he could. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's never put pressure on me. We talk about going into tournaments chill. So if I go to an in-tournament feeling a pressure that I've got to get a runners-up or a winners, that doesn't allow me to play my best and that, that puts pressure on me that I don't need. So we just go, it's just another tournament. We go and we play how we play. Da, 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 da. And actually, I heard another player who is like, so in the men's draw, who's similar to me, he's the most disabled player. And at the last tournament, I heard him say, oh, I disappointed myself. I should do better. And I think I said to him, Look, you are the most disabled person in that draw. The only thing you can cause is an upset. Because, yeah. to be fair, everybody is thinking he's out in the first round. The same as everybody thinks I'm out in the first round. Um, so the only thing he can cause is an upset. Do you know what? If you go out in the first round, you've kind of, you've kind of met expectations. So you can't, you can't underachieve there. And I, and I think it's about the way a coach and an athlete go in looking at these competitive opportunities. When I tell people that I've had mental health problems, they get really shocked. Because the thing is, if I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I will have a smile on my face, whatever happens, because it's it's taking my mind off things. And and so 
a lot of people look at me and go, oh, you're always smiley. You've got bunches in your hair, you know, da, 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 da. and I think there's that weird thing. Like I've started to talk about my mental health now and how it was really, really badly ruined within cheerleading. But I think a part of me was worried about talking about it. And I think that's the same with everybody. And I think that sometimes with disabled athletes or, or people getting involved in sport at any level, at grassroots level, even as well, it's that first initial because of the way you know, we saw it with Simone Biles when she spoke out. We saw it with Naomi Osaka. For every supportive comment you get for speaking out about your mental health, you get some idiot behind a laptop who, you know, who decides that they want to have an opinion and yeah. how could you possibly have mental health problems because you always look happy. And I think that's the problem is it's the way society views mental health as well. You know, because if I was a grassroots athlete, going to a session for the first time and I had the mental health problems I did would I feel confident saying to somebody that I have these problems and we need to watch this probably not because I'd feel I'd feel fear of being judged you know you know probably when this podcast comes out there's going to be somebody writes on Twitter that you know what have I got to be you know depressed about that's what people come out with and and I think it's it's what stopped people coming out and saying things and it's a dangerous thing because we all have mental health we all have mental health and it can go you know you it can you can have a wobbly moment at any moment no matter who you are no matter what your background no matter you know what you've done in your life it can affect every one of you and i think as well this year's proved that you know this last 18 months has proved yeah. that um and as for people on Twitter, you know, we are disabled women and yeah. we are on Twitter. We get shouted at for anything. Oh, no, um, I, I still maintain, so the best troll, so obviously women sports reporters get a lot of, whether you're disabled or non-disabled, <laughs> they get a lot of stick if they report on certain sports. But I maintain I have had the best troll ever. And well, it's not the best, it was actually quite insulting, but it's probably the most unique troll as a woman sports reporter that's ever going to happen because um, I was recording my podcast and I did an episode. I did a couple of episodes on women's football, which I do know about. Like I go, th I'm really interested in women's football and I love it. And, you know, when I was living in London, I'd go and watch Chelsea ladies every week and um, I'd go to the FA Cup final. Like it was a really big moment when they did that FA women's FA Cup final at Wembley for the first time. And I was there and I was like, yeah, I'm here. Um, it's so great to see women's football there. So I was speaking to a couple of women involved in football on my own podcast. And then I get this guy slips into my DMs, right? And I'm like, oh, God, here we go again. Because you always get them, don't you? Yeah. It's always the best one. Yeah. Um, so he wouldn't put it publicly. But what it actually said was, not only is it insulting that you're a woman talking about football, your legs don't work. So it's even more insulting. And I was like, "All right, mate. Um, I've never, no, I've never come across that truck. So it's I, the way it's the, these people say that as if it's the the first time we've ever heard it, and so no, no, no. we're going to go and cry." Um, I was yeah. like, "Oh, that's original. Well yeah. done." I think you know you you've listed some people there who have talked about their mental health, and you've been really open about your mental health on the show and just kind of in general and i think that that's something that's really important we've got to normalize talking about it and i think the more people that do obviously is a great thing but i think one of the things that 
you are in some ways by being one of this these forerunners of people who are talking about their mental health you're opening yourself up for um being called the i word which is i know something we touched on right at the very beginning and is a bit of a trigger <laughs> word for lucy Blech. oh it's a very triggering word for me very triggering word. as a sports reporter oh it's a very triggering word for me <laughs> Me and, me and Inspiration Porn are not best friends. Our editor, the other day, was it Alice? I think it was the post morning. On <laughs> yeah, on his link, LinkedIn. And you know how LinkedIn now gives you hashtag suggestions? Yeah. He came up with the I word. Oh. And he said, I had Lucy's voice in my head ranting. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it is though. Like, it's like. Just because I, you know, walk out my front... Well, I don't walk. I wheel out my front door. That doesn't make me inspirational. Plenty of people right. do it, mate. Um, you know, you wouldn't... I wouldn't. Nobody would call my mum inspirational for turning a key in a lock and opening a door. Um, I've had some great inspirational moments. Like, it. I mean, in being around the time of the Paralympics, it, <laughs> it's peak inspo porn. You do have um, to kind of take take cover for two weeks, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's hide weird. away. Paralympic... Parasport have made me like after my car accident don't get me wrong like I didn't know what I was going to do with my life and I found sport and it and it helped give me a direction and it helped me sh show me that whilst I couldn't do things in the way that I did before my car accident I could adapt the way I do things but I didn't do that to be some kind of inspiration I did that because I was like right I'm 30 years old I probably got another 70 years on this planet I I just I need to find what I called a new me so it's not that I've forgotten the me before my car accident. You know, um, I still do performing um, and singing on stage every now and again. I still, but I had to find what made me me. And it wasn't, it wasn't this sudden epiphany. Like a light didn't come down when I was in rehab going, take up tennis, take up tennis. You know, it wasn't like this, this some weird thing. It literally is. I mean, I ha I, I've read a book. It's a really good book. It's by um, Andrew, Andy Murray's coach. It's called The Way of the Tortoise. And I've kind of used that as my mantra for the last five years. So things don't happen immediately. You just kind of, um, you just kind of build it and you become the tortoise. So it's based on the whole hare and tortoise thing. Um, but yeah, I selfishly, I do what I do for me because I was like, I've got to find a way to make this work. I've got to find a way to make the hands not working work. Yeah. You know, people ask me what my USP is as a journalist. I'm like, I'm the journalist that can't write. Uh, and <laughs> which, which when I do interviews for freelance jobs, they were like, what? what you, you get, are you talking yourself out of this job? And I go, no, I use voice software to file my reports and stuff. And, um, and so, you know, I had to find me again. But to some people, like, you get this inspirational story. And I'm like, it's really not inspirational. It's like... I have one life, I need to live it, and I need to live it as best as I can. Um, and I think, yeah, like you talk about the two weeks of the Paralympics. I do have a, uh, if it was a Facebook status, it would say it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it must be particularly bad for you because where everybody else is hiding, you've got to yeah. stick your head over the parapet. Yeah. And I think for me is I have a, I have a thought my job in the media to be a sports reporter is to get rid of inspiration porn. Mm -hmm. So I actively, if you look at any of my reports or anything I do, the sport takes front and center. I report sport to sport. If it's wheelchair tennis, I report it in the same way. And, and 
and what was really good is my journalism training. I learned um, basically um, ways that sports reporters in the media do. So the things you'll see from me are, you know, the five things you've learned, we've learned from a tournament or, you know, um, how such and such got to the Grand Slam final. What was it about their game and stuff? Because I really want people reading to see these people as athletes and tennis players, first and foremost. Mm. Um, and I want to move that narrative forward. The problem is with the Paralympics is um, not everybody who works in the media thinks that way. Um, so I did a lot when I was doing my MA, my MA thesis was all based around um, this inspiration poem narrative. And I went into the history of it. And it's uh, what I interesting found out, and which probably you guys know, too, is that it all stems from Barnum Circus. So, yes, that lovely movie called The Greatest Showman. <laughs> it's that guy that gave yeah. us the media narrative. We it have. is a good bit. To be fair, though, it is a good movie. There oh, is it's some, a good movie. There is some that guy. Good... Not you, Jackman. You, Jackman, no. you're a lovely person. You <laughs> came a hundred years after. But that guy who he was playing with is responsible for the media narrative we have around this yeah. And what we've got... And to I have a bit of a problem with the way he's kind of been glamorised mm. and what he did has been a bit glamorised. Yeah. Like, and so you were going to say, Alice, that you had a problem with Hugh Jackman and then we would no, have really no, fallen out. The opposite. <laughs> I just want right, to the opposite. My feelings are clear. You, we are not blaming you. If you ever want to sing with me, you are more for another offer anytime. Because yeah, um, Hugh Jackman, yeah. he's a regular listener to our show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tag him in it. I'm sure he'll love it. Um, and um, but the guy who he was playing is responsible for this media narrative, and this media narrative has come about because edit non-disabled editors feel like they need that to communicate mm. disability, anything around disability to a non-disabled audience. Um, uh, but I will always say, and I've said this on other podcasts before, the only reason that narrative exists is to say to a non-disabled person, get up off the sofa and go for a run. Because it really is just saying, this person lost a leg and now they've done this. Why aren't you getting up? Is literally what, what it's saying. Do you know, that? that's literally the message it said. Even my mum, my mum is non-disabled, uh, but um i i have a disability obviously um why well, i'm on this podcast um <laughs> but she is even sick of hearing it she's like i'm sick yeah. of it i'll turn it off i'm actually sick of it and editors need to also realize that that narrative isn't just offensive it's rooted in ableism mm -hmm. it's rooted in something called ableism which you know is not something we should be doing in 2021 if you if you look and see what ableism is exactly how that narrative goes is ableism and it's recognized as ableism and what i think is as well you know yes i play sport and it's great but do you know what to another disabled person getting their socks on in the morning is like taking part in a paralympic sport because yeah. that's what they can do and i i always I'm aware when I'm writing or when I'm talking about me being involved in sport that I don't want to put pressure on other disabled people because the problem is people watch the Paralympics and then assume that every disabled person can can go and be a Paralympian. No, those guys are elite level athletes. They train five, six days a week and that's what they focus on and that's what their career is on. I was Just talking like to Olympian. my, yeah, I was talking to my best friend last night and uh, we were talking about the Paralympics. Well, we were talking about the Olympics 
and then of course talking about the Paralympics and he said um, you get all these people going oh why don't you try that and he said yeah you're getting a bit too old now <laughs> to be <an> <laughs> Kiss Tom. Kiss Tom. Yeah. Um, so I might just start using that. You know, yeah. I'm too old now. Yeah, I, too I old think now. as well, like I've had it. Like I talk about, you know, before Rio, I went, came back home. Um, so I just finished my um, journalism degree. So I was a bit too late to go to Rio. So Tokyo was going to be my first actual in-person Paralympics reporting job. And then, you know, coronavirus happened. So I'm doing it from the UK. God bless the time difference. I'm going to be up all night for three weeks. Um, <laughs> this is going to, and then I go from that to four days later, the US Open, uh, covering it from the UK. And I'm like, I am not going to know when to sleep. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, but um, they, I think, yeah, I think you've got to realize it. You know, I had it in, te- yeah, just before years, I had it in Tesco's, right? I, I say, tell you the story. I was in, to other supermarkets are available but I was in the Tesco aisle don't worry this isn't the BBC you can <laughs> whatever you want <laughs> I just worry just in case no um, no anybody if Tesco's or any other supermarket like to sponsor us then we will if they know. like to sponsor me as an athlete can yeah, we also have some Ben and Jerry's in the sponsorship package <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they um they I was sat there with two packets of Freddo's on my knee going to get coffee right and this guy pointed to not the direction that Rio was in. He just pointed to any direction. There was no ge- geographical knowledge in the pointing. <laughs> and he just pointed at me and went, because the Paralympics had just started, he just pointed at me and went, Rio's that way. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Not every disabled person has gone to Rio to compete in the Paralympics. That's not every disabled person in the world. That's like... The elite sports people. That's the people. No, there's, there's actually only a dozen of us <laughs> in each country. Yeah, that's the people who don't sit in Tesco's and buy packets of Freddo's and coffee. <laughs> uh, but, which is not me. Um, you know, I, no, actually, I think I perform better under coffee. I always have a coffee before I compete. And I think I think it's like, I think I, I'm not joking. Uh, <laughs> I, I think... Uh, clean sport. Uh, but she's not, before I she's not dead to Bonkenko. Yeah, you know, I've got a caramel latte here. Yeah, but, um, it's, um, but um, yeah, it, it's that thing. And it's that thing that I do feel that, and I feel, the problem is you feel a responsibility as a reporter and I feel a responsibility as a disabled reporter to make sure that whatever I put out doesn't, enhance that narrative that basically if you're not a disabled person who goes to Paralympics you know the like 0.01% people who are good enough um because let's not as I keep saying they're elite level athletes I don't put the pressure on another disabled person no um and I think I think that I wait I I do 10 million drafts to make sure I don't do that and I'm always but not everybody in the newsroom is like that um, because not everybody working in Paralympic sport in a newsroom is disabled themselves. So what is I that? I think that's thing? the key, isn't it? Mm. Maybe we need more disabled re- reporters. Oh, yeah. Like doing the I, Paralympics, then there wouldn't be any more inspiration. Yeah, in, and that's not, saying, that's not saying a non-disabled reporter can't cover the Paralympics. There are some no. very good, um, somebody who I looked up to, Nick Hope, Mm-hmm. Um, very good reporter he covers olympic and paralympic sport but it's when non-disabled when i'm in an editorial meeting 
and I'm trying to tell non-disabled reporters the harm that if that one line is in the um, piece could do to a whole community, I feel like, please listen to me because that is my community and I know exactly how they'll feel and they will hate me. Do you get respected for it? Do they kind of go, okay, we're we're taking that on board or is there a... Uh, no, I've had to, in my career, I have had to be quite stern. Like, I have had to ask for my name to be taken off bylines. And as a journalist, your bylines kind of your calling card for whatever jobs you get. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just haven't been happy about how it's been out. But I think the beauty is now that I'm freelance. I'm not working for one particular company. So when somebody asks me to do something for them, they know my voice. They know what I do. And they're asking me because they want that voice. What would your advice be to other journalists, editors, non-disabled writers out there who are perpetuating that inspiration porn narrative in disability sport? I think like what we've talked about before is it's not just putting pressure on disabled people, it's ableism. And ableism is not good however, in whatever form it takes. You know, I'm pretty sure we've all dealt with some form of ableism at some point in our life probably multiple times i multiple say, times. if you've ever listened to the show yeah it's just a long <laughs> list of things basically all I, yeah all i would ask people to do is go and research ableism because it's a big thing and you know what disabled people are speaking out about it now because i think with younger disabled people like myself we're not willing to put up with that crap we're not willing to be you know, constantly fighting ableism. It needs to be called out. And the way in which you call it out is important. Like, you have to kind of, it's more about educating rather than ranting. Yeah. Uh, I'm always, I'm always that person that if somebody says something to me, I mean, the best, it's not the best one, let's just say it's never best. The amount of times I go in a shop and people tell me I need a horn on my wheelchair because they didn't see me. Or have you got a license for that? Have you got a license? For I, I, do you know what? Do you always I, like it's happened a lot since things have opened up in coronavirus. It's old men. They go, yeah. Oh, oh, oh! I thought you were going to run me over. Yeah. Like, you know what, mate? I'm fine in a wheelchair. I use it twenty four seven. I quite. You know what? I've managed to be responsible enough that I don't go running people over on the street. Literally, um, the first shop I went in. After spending about six months in the house, nowhere, going nowhere. Yeah. I got out of the car, walked across the car park, in through the electric doors, and there was a man stood there, and I went, have you got a license for that? I was like, literally, you're the first person I've seen. It's good to be out. Yeah. It's good and to I be out. Back in my... Welcome back to, like, life. But <laughs> it is back in. in. Yeah. And then once I was, I was in a shop in London with my mates, who I was at uni with, and I'd literally picked up, so it did those, it did American sweets. So it was like Reese's Pieces and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Hershey's. And I'd just gone into a shop to get that. I'm not going to lie. My mate was getting some cakes off the counter, right? Um, you know, I sound like guys who do like, I'm not a, a, that high up an athlete. If you want to be that high up an athlete, do not talk about cakes and coffee. Um, <laughs> And this is the moment, but he he'd gone to get some cakes, and I went and picked up a bar of chocolate. And this woman just looked at me, and she went, "Oh!" and then patted me on the head. And I was like, "Must not blow right now. Just wheel off, Gemma. 
keep your mouth shut and scream outside. <laughs> because the patting of the head, I was like, I am a 30-year-old woman. Do not pat me on the head like some, you know. And it's actually, actually with a lot of my friends at the tennis club, they use it now because they go, uh, it's like a joke because they know I hated that moment. Like mm. I never felt so infantilized in my whole life. And I, I told them about it and now they use it. So if I, if I'm, if I'm wheeling off somewhere, they're like, oh, do you want us to pat you on the head? But they, <laughs> they mean it. They're, they're just my out of me. My best friend. I did a local article in my local paper when I considered, I dabbled a little bit in uh, self-employment to sort of like offer advice for companies and things. And uh, I had this big article in the paper and it was my friend who'd written it. And he said, uh, I've done Lucy for like 15 years. And she never ever complains. <laughs> <laughs> And then the article was just a big list of me complaining. And he was like, she was like, Lucy, all you've done is whinge. <laughs> Do you know what? People all listen to this podcast and I'm like, you usually cheery happy, Gem. And I'm like, oh, life happens. Da, 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 da. Let's just go on with it. Like, you just spent two hours whinging. Um, like, no, because this was my this was my platform. And now the people who've done this to me know how annoying it was. But yeah. no. I, the thing is, I can I have a good group of friends who uh, they do you know if they want to rip it out of me, they will use what's been used against me. Yeah. Like, like when I'm sat in Starbucks, other coffee shops are available. See, I'm I'm covering it for you again, and <laughs> and that one of them will call me inspirational for drinking a latte because I once got called inspirational for drinking a latte, um, which I thought was hilarious because I was like, really, really, no. Do you want okay. my best? inspirational story yeah go for it alice i don't know i might have told you this i used to work in B at bbc birmingham as a behind the scenes kind of woman and uh celebrities would wander in and out and cliff richard walked past my desk and said he walked past me and ignored me and i looked at him and i was oh that's cliff richard and he came back and he said I think it's wonderful that people like you have jobs like this. Such an oh. inspiration. And he walked away and I was just like, did Cliff Richard just call me an inspiration? And yeah, even my colleagues were like, what is that? To be fair, people like you. That happened like to me. You. My mum is a, is a really big Cliff Richard fan. My mum would be like, I don't care yeah. what you're saying, don't say anything. <laughs> not shout Cliff Richard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My mum would have been like, she'd be like, I don't care. I'm his biggest fan. Um, don't um, care what he said. I don't care what it said. Take it, Gemma. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's ableism you. and then there's Cliff Richard. <laughs> Mate, no, it's, a, it's like... You just don't expect somebody like Cliff to come out with us. No, no. I wouldn't. No. I, of all the people, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, Ainsley Harriet offered. He said, "Do you want a kiss?" And I went, "Not really." <laughs> <laughs> not really. Yeah, not really. You're not what I was for. You're not like my day. That's so funny because actually, <laughs> do you guys find that you get like weird? Um, so it was the other week we were laughing, uh, me and a couple of the guys at the tennis club about this thing so i just finished wimbledon reporting mm -hmm. and i got this guy do you get weird people slip into your dms and ask yeah, like, yeah. because i i i literally was 
on my Instagram and then I had this Instagram message that said, you like tennis, I like tennis, I have an auntie in a wheelchair, let's chat. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is that? I was like, what the hell are you? Clearly <laughs> we've got some common ground. Let's build a meaningful relationship on it. Build a lifetime and let's get married straight away. You know, let's yeah, yeah. this. Right, you like tennis, you've got an auntie in a wheelchair, clearly you know about me it's all the about people, this. isn't it? Who, uh, they like girls in a wheelchair. Because yeah. they like the struggle and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and I was like, weird. I've had so many weird people. And then I had another guy who literally kept shouting at me on social media. And then all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden slipped into my DMs and said, oh, now the pubs are open, do you want to do you want to, do you want to meet at a pub? For a drink, I was like, "What?" So you, you, you like relationships? No, um, and then, so it's it's quite and like and the, yeah, the dating thing is hilarious because you just get, and especially being in the media, you get these weird people. So as much as you get the trolls, you then get these weird devotees who like mm-hmm. pop in, uh, pop in, and they're like, "Just I'm like, you clearly have no idea if you think that you saying you like tennis and you have an auntie in a wheelchair." Like. <laughs> 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 We both like tennis, but if you still don't like me, my aunt is in the wheelchair. <laughs> I think that's as bad as I know what it's like to be disabled because I have a disabled mother. <laughs> well, and that's all I could think of my head. I was like, no, no, no. Not um, the same. And it's like, do you know what? I'd happily be on the own, my own for the rest of my life if I didn't have to date you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't. I've never met the guy, but he came into my DMs and really didn't do it the right way. I mean, you've got to admire his bravery. Uh, bravery or... Well, <laughs> what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sort of like... I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for, Alice? I don't know. I always think of it in that terms of... It's like if you... You throw enough punches, one of them's going to land. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, what sort of fight are you in if those are yeah. the punches you're throwing? Like, I mean, it's not Anthony Joshua level, is no. it? No. <laughs> now, right. him, him, if he dropped into my DMs. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I he like could it. say right. whatever he right. wanted. Right. We're tagging in this part. This <laughs> you, Jackman. Please sing with Gemma. Anthony <laughs> uh, Joshua, please date Alice. Yeah. Um, please slip into Alice's DMs. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah. I think it's a taboo, though, isn't it, with disability as well? Like, people feel that they can't talk about dating disabled people. Not unless they're on the um, undateables. Oh, God, I, think I hate the title of that program. Because it says, yeah. because I, cause my legs don't work. I I'm think it's not... in... Where's the one with all, like, the tulips and the clogs. Where's that country? Oh, Holland. <laughs> Holland. <laughs> it's like, let's get a stereotype of a country. <laughs> I couldn't think of where it was. <laughs> Holland. <laughs> We've just been talking about stereotyping disabled people. <laughs> and you're stereotyping a whole country. Oh, yeah. tulips and clogs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they, um, they call the undateables. The dateables. Do they? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we all need to move to we need we need to move to Holland then. For clogs and tulips. Gemma, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really interesting. And uh, I feel like we're ending on a bit of an up note, although yes. we talked about some quite serious stuff. Where can our listeners find you? What is there anything you want to plug? Stuff like that. 
Oh, so I'm all over social media. I love a bit of Twitter and the gram. I'm not quite a Facebook girl. I'm a little bit, you know how older people use Facebook. Sorry, older people. Um, but I'm a Twitter. <laughs> Sorry, older people. But my mum uses Facebook. And so I don't go on that very often. Um, and so, um, yeah, Twitter and Instagram is probably the best place to um, find me, which I'm G Stevenson with a V, sport. Uh, so G Stevenson Sport. Uh, yeah, you can uh, round about the times of the Grand Slams and the tennis events. You can see my stuff on Sky Sports. Uh, you can also tune into my podcast. I have my own podcast. It's called The Constant Cheerleader. It's actually a podcast that I recorded over lockdown. There will be a season three. I've just been too busy coming out of the global plague situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's all about women in sports and the arts and business. So because I'm a sports sports reporter and I've kind of been hit into this niche of Gemma does wheelchair tennis. Uh, it's something I did during lockdown just for a bit of fun. So I was uh, I was um, interviewing boxers, uh, footballers, uh, people in the theatre, business, yeah, like business people who'd created their own companies and stuff like that. And they all had like a message of, you know, kind of positivity during the strange times that we were in but it's to be fair the interviews are still listenable to now it's not like obviously we refer to lockdown uh don't want to you know trigger any uncomfortable feelings for people um but yeah no there will be season three when i can be bothered to get around to doing it because <laughs> it was a lot of, as you guys know doing a podcast is a lot of work mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> i'm just working out what my work commitments are before i then start going oh yeah we'll do a 10 episode season <laughs> and then i'm like Oh my God, I've got to do all these sports events too. That's on Apple podcasts and all the kind of major podcast things. But yeah, no, I always say to people, if you ever want to um, um, get in touch, just DM me, not telling me that you're ants in a wheelchair and and that you like tennis. Um, men who want to do that, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, for support, so I'm, I mentor a lot of journalists, um, disabled journalists, um, and they always like, you know, pop i'm always there you might not get an answer straight away depending on what my work commitments are like but um you will always get an answer um so um because i i want to encourage more disabled people into the media because there are not many of us even though you know we've made strides i'm st i can still wheel into a newsroom and be the only one who looks like me in that newsroom mm -hmm. um and that's at all level all levels um you know and so um i'm really all for encouraging especially in sports media because the more people like me who are fighting the status quo of inspiration porn, you know, um, the more, the quicker it's going to change. Um, and I think we've seen it with the Channel 4 advert actually for this year where, um, I don't know whether you've seen it. Um, yes, I have. The superhumans. Mm. They've actually cracked the glass of the super bit and just put humans um, at the end of the, at the end of the advert for the Ch Channel 4 Paralympics, when I saw that for the first time, I was like, hallelujah. So we're not going to be using superhumans. I did, I did quite like the tagline that said, there's got to be something wrong with you. <laughs> As, cause obviously to be a Paralympian, there's got to be something wrong with yeah. you. So. Yeah. I mean, you've been saying that since we started doing the podcast, Liz. <laughs> yeah. You don't understand these people. <laughs> so. but no, that was quite nice actually. Cause I, I was fully prepared for the, Paralympics adverts to come out and be all this superhumans and stuff again. So mm -hmm. when at the end of the, the the whole advert shows the Paralympians doing normal things in their lead up to Rio. So like you had Geordie who, oh, sorry, Jordan Wiley, who has had her son in between Rio and Tokyo. And it showed her, you know, she, her road to Tokyo also included giving birth to her son and just being human. 
you know, mm. do it, you know. And and then I thought, oh, this is going all right. This is going all right, this advert. And then, yeah, the very final image where it has superhumans and then they just crack the glass on super. And you I haven't seen that. That's really cool. Um, I, I think it sends a powerful message. Mm. I don't know how much it will go through or how much that will then translate. Yeah, quite a subtle message. Yeah. And sometimes um, people need to be bludgeoned over the head with something. Yeah. But I think it's a big step forward. I think, like I always say with media representation of the inspiration porn, London 2012 put us on the roadmap by using that thing of superhumans. Yeah. But I think the nat- we now need to move the narrative on. We now need yeah. to move the narrative on to sport is sport. Um, we need to look at disabled stories in general news and say that they need to be told. They're not just a diversity tick box. Yeah, my opinion is is... London 2012 gave that platform by using traditional media narratives around disability. Now we've got to move that on and we've kind of got to break that ceiling of traditional media narratives and see disabled people as humans and people. We are not some kind of other. We are we are included in society. Gemma, that's a brilliant way to finish. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Gemma. No worries. We eventually got a meeting time. We did, yes. (laughs) All right, everybody. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget the rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can donate to our GoFundMe. That's all all over our social medias and on our website. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Labelled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at Labelled Podcast. Our thanks go to our editor, Adam Hall, our music composer, Maisie Crunden, and our graphic designer, Sarah Coney. We'll We'll see see you next time. time.